Metropolis. I did that because we don't have a theme song just yet. <laughs> You're working on that. Exactly. I'm working yeah. on that. Thank you. I'm just workshopping something. Let me know in the comments how you like that. And if you didn't, keep that to yourself. Um, or just tell is, them. Say again? Just tell them. No, it, I, I, freedom of expression. You know? Yeah, there you go. I don't believe in that here on this show. Um, it is February 7th, 2024. Uh, almost Lunar New Year. Uh, on today's episode, we have returning guest, Niall Clapham Ricardo. Uh, Niall is uh, Niall Clapham Ricardo holds degrees in sociology, political science, and law from UCAM. He is a member of Independent Jewish Voices and a trade union activist based in Muniang Chojage, otherwise known as Montreal. Uh, my name is Colin Rangdudatsampa. Uh, today we have a honestly a very a very very nice uh, list of topics. We're going to have some good discussions. Uh, before we get into them, Niall, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing. I'm doing excellent. I'm doing excellent. Thank you for asking me. How I'm Thanks doing. for having me on the show. Of course. Again. Of course. Of course. I mean, uh, your last appearance with uh, Sarah from uh, you both uh, came as uh, two representatives from IJV to talk about uh, anti-Semitism in Montreal. I think we really enjoyed that. But today, you're not here uh, representing IJV. You're here representing yourself. You're just here to talk. You're just here yeah. to talk. You're just mm-hmm. here to talk. It's um, basically what we the conversation we have in your car. Yes. But now on. This, the YouTube channel yeah, slash yeah, yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. now I don't have a car. You don't have that car? You don't I have did. a car at all? I don't have a car at all now. Wow. No, I'm using my mom's car. I thought I was going to get a ride back with you. But <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> yeah, take the bus. That's the way I did. Take the, you, you ever hear uh, taking the BMW? The BMW? Bus Metro Walk. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> great show. We got a great show tonight, folks. <laughs> uh, first topic, Niall. Uh, Montreal, this is, this is some news from Monday on February 5th, 2024. Can we get the slide, please? This is, uh, I believe, our first slide. Here we go. So <clears throat> the headline reads, this was in the CTV by the Canadian press, Montreal's largest housing building to combat homelessness inaugurated. Uh, so Monday, elected officials were in downtown Montreal Monday morning to take part in the inauguration in downtown Montreal of what is being described as the largest housing building dedicated to the fight against homelessness in Quebec. Uh, how big is this building? Some of you might be asking as I uh, was wondering myself. Well, this building is going to consist of 114 units uh, where 80% of the tenants will be benefiting from rent supplements, enabling them to pay 25% of their income towards housing um, the Christine building located on Christine Street between St. Catherine and René-Levesque will provide nearly 100 people in vulnerable situations with access not only to housing, but also to on-site psychosocial support, said Quebec's minister responsible for social services, Lionel Carmont. 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 Um... Yeah, so yeah, they they really uh we this nothing uh, politicians love more than uh, cutting ribbons. Uh, <laughs> now, now, what do you make of what do you make of this? Uh, 100, 114 new units to combat homelessness in Quebec, the largest housing building. Well, I mean, obviously, like it's good news in the sense that there's a building to house homeless people, and we're going through like you know one of the worst crises. I don't even know if we can call this a crisis anymore. I mean, at this point, it's just like every year, every month, every day seems like it's worse. Um, yeah, it's, all, it's all the same prolonged crisis. And it's been going for like, you know, we talk, we talk about housing recently, but it's been going on for, I don't know how long, um, over a decade now. Um, 
So obviously it's good news in the sense that, you know, it's a project that got off the ground um, and we have 100 plus units for uh, folks uh, to be able to stay in when your government tells you that there's a new curfew and you're homeless and you can't stay outside. Oh, I believe you were talking about the uh, yeah. COVID curfew that the uh, Lego government uh, instituted during uh, the uh, pandemic. Yeah, and they told everybody that homeless people were not exempt from it. And the reasoning behind that was that people were going to dress up as homeless people to um, be able to um, bypass the, the curfew, the curfew. laws, yeah. um, which obviously, I mean, you know, everybody thought about that, right? But it just, it's just like, <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's funny, but it's not because of course, in the sense that like, this is what this government's understanding of homeless issues is, right? You know, it's people that are like, well, you know, homeless, like literally, it's just like, like, let's take a second to understand the magnitude of stupidity that goes into thinking that somebody who is homeless is able to seek refuge. When you're the government, mm -hmm. you know that homeless, like, you know, shelters were overflowing at that time. And you thought that it was okay. Like, yeah, homeless people just, you know, they're going to find a, a place to stay. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. we don't have to give them an exception. 8 p.m. Go somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And this ties into this announcement, right, from 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 the government, which is also, you know, there's a nonprofit that's involved, which is like Haibono, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, and it kind of shows us like the duplicism uh, 2.0 from the CAC, which is this idea that uh, the state has no role to play except facilitating um ppp or in this sense so uh uh private uh public partnerships or in this sense it's not even that public because you've got the city and then you've got like you know a non-profit um so this whole idea that the state has no role to play in even providing the housing like before mm -hmm. you know if we we're talking the 1950s 1960s we would be well probably not with duplicity but i mean 1970s maybe with with an event we had uh systems that were put in place you know like uh, the whole healthcare system the idea that the quebec healthcare system had to go into the neighborhood so you had neighborhood clinics where people would uh, have those services you had uh you know housing corporations public entities that would be building housing on the federal level like uh, a housing kind of the housing corp and and so now this is where we're at right we're we're at um private uh entities quote unquote non-public right like they're not they're not for profits but they're not public entities either they're receiving money publicly from public institutions most of the staff at the that Kaibonu and all of that um although being unionized make a lot more a lot less than what government employees doing their same job doing the same job they do made 20 years ago mm -hmm. um so we're basically offloading this onto uh, organizations that do not have uh, the resources to do the job, and they also do not have um, the 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 ability, right, to do it. So the city of Montreal doesn't have the ability. Like, yes, you can put piecemeal uh, social programs in Montreal at you know public libraries here and there, um, but you can't put like an overbroad general overarching approach to homelessness, which is the role of the government of Quebec and the role of the Canadian government. So they come and they say, here, we cut a check. We're going to come and cut the, uh, the ribbon um, at the inauguration. Um, and at the same time, you know, this government is through Bill 31, basically creating more and more homeless people, mm -hmm. right? Because like they're going to get rid of what was basically that close... Um, 
Francoise David, and they're going to get rid, which which allowed folks to basically uh, that were over 65 or 70, I forget the exact age, but you couldn't renovict. I think it's 70. You couldn't, I should know this anyways, whatever, um, uh, <laughs> that they shouldn't renovict. I'm saying that because like, uh, at the, at the bar exam, there was an actual question about this. Yes. Um, and I failed it and I failed it, um, by, 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 by five points. Um, oh, when, when but, was that also? Uh, that was in January. It was like first week of January. Tough, tough, it's fresh. Tough. It's fresh. Um, but uh, so there was uh, there was um, there's something basically that makes it that you you cannot uh, evict without like there, there's several measures that have to be in place that are supposed to protect elderly folks. I think over 70 uh, from renovations, basically. Mm-hmm. And if you like there's a lot of this uh, dispositions or. Uh, Articles that would apply normally to developers to be able to renovate folks that don't apply to folks that would be over uh, 70, right? Um, Some protections for the elderly. Yeah, so they want to get rid of that or they want to weaken them. And they also want to get rid of of lease transfers. And lease transfers, you know, um, it's funny because the minister obviously also said that, you know, it was a way of gaming the system Mm -hmm. where it's like the system is gaming everybody But apparently the people that are trying to prevent the system from gaming them are the ones gaming, gaming the, system. the system, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You're oppressing me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the lease transfers um, is a way, you know, is a mechanism basically to make sure that you're actually paying the rent within the realm of the percentage given by the tile every year, right? Mm-hmm. Because we all know, and anybody who's done, who lives in Quebec knows that if you go into a place um, on July 1st and you don't know what the person was paying before, you're probably paying a lot more than the percentage of increase that was allowed that year. Of course, right? yeah. So that's what least that's the mechanism of lease transfers has been one of the reasons, and obviously not to the longest, ex- the largest extent, but one of the mechanisms that has allowed uh, uh, Montreal and and Quebec in general to weather a little bit like the 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 rent crisis, the housing crisis compared to Ontario, mm-hmm. BC, etc. And now they want to get rid of that, um, and we're already in a crisis right mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was. Uh, I guess you're saying the lease transfer was a little tool that tenants had to kind little of little tool, yeah, a very a very not... little tool in the toolkit that tenants had to whatever like keep rents sort of in check. And uh, now the uh, CAC administration, uh, the housing minister, François Durand, wants to get rid of it. I think uh, broadly, so what you're talking about, I want to talk a bit more about the uh, points you were making earlier about um, uh, this this government's approach. Uh, not Of course, not maybe not this government, but I guess government's approach, uh, plural, government's approach uh, this time towards housing, towards these uh, public institutions. I guess towards what they're what they what I guess they think of their role is where in the past they might have been it's much more let's say like hands on where it's the government's like okay we want to provide housing for like let's say veterans and NDG we're going to build like Benny Farms we're going to have like boom this is like a housing that's going to belong to them uh, that we're, we're going to make but then they get to live in it where now I guess what you're saying it feels like you're suggesting that you no longer have these uh, institutions that would be the ones building the housing instead of hiring people who are like government employees who have to pay a lot. Now, instead, they kind of give the job to non-governmental entities and every now and then cut them a check for like a small kind of like yeah. uh, a small. It's like, of course, I, I I will say like this is like a welcome like uh, uh, project, right, as we're saying, because it's like, of course, like any kind of like 
reprieve for people from this from the housing crisis i think like a good thing but then i feel like uh i feel like the issue is m- more so uh and, and like i think the uh, executive uh, director of uh, of Akari, uh, Banon also said this where it's like they're announcing this this project is going to this project in uh, on, in the Kastin building that uh, elected officials were at monday um this is going to provide uh housing for around 100 people and 114 units the Quebec government was saying there's something like 300 or 400 more units in the pipeline, but the executive director of Calmont was saying, yeah, but we need like thousands, right? And I feel like that sort of ties into what you're saying about like you have this, you have these piecemeal approaches by like essentially like non-governmental entities that are doing the job of the government. And of course, they can't do the job of the government because they don't have the resources for it. They don't have the ability for it, like you were saying, which I kind of want to get into. I'm kind of curious what you mean about that. And you have these slow stoppages, maybe, no, not even stoppages. You have slowly addressing maybe some of the symptoms of the crisis of homelessness, of the crisis of uh, housing in uh, Quebec. But you have no kind of approach from the government to kind of even consider uh, uh, policies that kind of tackle the issue that causes homelessness or that causes the housing crisis. Because as you're saying, it's been in the works for like decades and it seems like no one has that kind of long-term picture on this issue. But so what creates, what creates homelessness? Mm-hmm. Right, like what creates homelessness? So homeless people just appear. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like obviously not. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's public policy or lack thereof, or the state or public entities, governments deciding that we're not going to invest as much money in social housing. We're not going to build social housing anymore. We're not going to force developers to the table to create adequate housing. Um, you know, that creates homelessness, mm-hmm. right? Homelessness doesn't just come out of nowhere, right? There's also like that that intersection between mental health and homelessness, right? Where we saw, you know, in Ontario in the 90s, uh, but also in Quebec. And, and, and there could be a whole thing written about this, about, you know, um, how mental, uh, mental health care services were the first to take cuts um, under neoliberalism. Of course. Right? And and obviously neoliberalism creates a bigger mental health care crisis and there's all of that that, 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 that is involved with that, you know. Um, and the Joker kind of talks about that, the movie, you know, a little bit. Um, but it's true, you know, where no, yeah, yeah. you, you, you see, see that. the you see psychologist that. and we don't have any more money yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know, all of that. And the Joker's actually set in what was a, a laboratory in the United States for neoliberalism, which was New York, New York in, the in the 1980s. In the 80s, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know. Um, so, but, but, so there's that. There's, there's the first decision because it's the, nobody's going to complain about, you know, uh, folks that are living in in um, mental institutions or, you know, publicly funded mental institutions or that were controlled by the state, right? Like literally regulated, controlled, et cetera, by the so state. no one's going to complain about them? Nobody's going to complain about cuts to it. Sure. You know, nobody's sure. going to complain about shutting down um, those institutions. And that's literally what they did. I mean, Ontario did it. Quebec did it. Most of the provinces across Canada, most of the states in the United States did it. Um, you know, you could just go on and on and on. Maybe some places in Europe didn't do it. But, you know, pretty much throughout the West, that's what it was. And and then after that, you also have, you know, subsequent thing, which is like now, well, where these people go, they're on the streets Mm -hmm. and they can't go anywhere because like rent is just completely crazy. And before you had mechanisms, which was basically, you know, you had social housing. So people would go, you know, um, basically, 
um, to mental health care services, institutions, um, and then they would have, you know, priority on housing wait lists, right? But we haven't built housing in the past 40 years, 50 years. So somebody who in the 80s, 90s got on a list might still be waiting in the 2000s, 2010s. And then you're talking about, you know, 10 years of just waiting, uh, paying ridiculous amounts of rent and on all of this. So all of these issues are are, are connected, right? Mm-hmm. All of these issues are connected. And the idea that, you know, governments can just, you know, and, and you wanted to get into the whole question of what I meant by they ability. don't have the ability, yeah. right? They don't have the ability. Legally speaking, Montreal can't legislate um, a lot in, in a lot of uh, areas, right? Um, because they are an entity that basically their um, their uh, the realm of possibility legally of action of the city of Montreal is determined by either uh, and in most cases by the Quebec government, right? In most cases and in some forms by the federal government too. So they can't really act, right? And there's been debate about this. Like cities should have more. Uh, a bigger realm of of possibility to act in Canada. Um, yeah. Seattle, for example, in, has minimum wage, a minimum wage, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. some cities in the United States have minimum wage. New York legislated on uh, artificial intelligence right, right, right. and the use of artificial intelligence. So within New York City, there is legislation on inf- artificial intelligence. So that's like much further than anything Montreal could do. I feel like well, some stuff I've heard from uh, previous uh, people who used to be borough mayors in Montreal, we're talking about like, cause I would ask about like, you know, like well, what's it like administrating it? And this former borough mayor, uh, borough mayor told me, uh, it's essentially like our hands are tied. We're like essentially, uh, she, she called themselves a, like a like a, the, an administrative arm of the Quebec government, yeah, right. Where it's just like so many there's so so many decisions that you can't really like enact yourself. The ones you can are like sort of like small scale things because it's like most things are just already like sort of have their own operation, right? With like snow plows or like potholes yeah. and stuff like that. And she was just trying to make that comparison where it's like we're kind of. Now, I don't know if she was suggesting they're powerless, but I think. Um, I assumed that there was much more power. And then after talking to her, it was like, uh, I started, to, this picture started to form exactly what you were describing, right? Oh, no, it's actually like cities in Canada, or at least in Quebec and Ontario, perhaps, are like, le- have much less uh, uh, municipal power than other cities, like in America. Oh, like, for I, sure. I know, like, I know, I think it was like, I think it was Doug Ford, right? Who like tried to uh, uh, campaign for like a more like municipal, to, to, for like the Ontario government to like give municipalities more kind of a. Uh, yeah, so that power. happened. There was that agreement between yeah. uh, John Tory and Doug Ford, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. Olivia Chow became mayor, and he was probably not expecting that. So he's no, probably exactly, like, he's probably like kind of like expecting a certain kind of right mayor. About yeah. that, but I think even uh, Gabriel Nadeau Dubois of uh, Quebec City was uh, trying to position himself as a sort of like municipal friend as well. So it's interesting seeing seeing this uh, uh, problem that you're describing uh, starting to be like campaigned on in uh, in some uh, on some provincial levels. Yeah, and 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 so. There's, there's two things, like what you were talking was thinking about, like the fact that there's a huge disconnect between on the progressive level, there's like all of these progressive, quote unquote progressive, like we can dig into that. Uh, we can dig into that later. But yeah. um, when you say you that, know, I want you to look into the camera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I, I, I don't look people in the eye when I say mean things. Um, but uh, they, so there's this progressive like uh, fronts municipally, right? Like there's a bunch of like, even small municipalities that, you know, elected like uh, green mayors, et cetera. And there was even articles about that and all of that. Um, but at the same time, you know, at least here in Montreal, 
And I want to bring folks back a little, not too, too far back, but when there was the whole um, fiasco in Oshlaga about, uh, I think it was at the start of COVID, I think it was like 2020, maybe autumn 2020, um, where it was decided that we were the, they were going to come with the police, ride cops, and there was even horses, I think, in some, in some pictures um, to basically get rid of the the homeless camp encampment oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the, whatever there. The tent, this tent city that was there. The yeah. tent city, yeah. yeah. Um, whatever term the media was using. Um, and the way Valérie Plante and the Projet Montréal administration went about it was how they go about a lot of things. You know, it's like, we don't want to do this, but it is what it is. Like, we don't want to give the biggest increase to police in Montreal history but we got that portfolio from Quebec, so we have to do it, mm-hmm. right? Um, we don't want to get rid of this encampment, but at the same time, like, we have no other, uh, we can't go about it any other way because there's security concerns and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, they're and concerned about uh, fire safety. Fi- yeah, because was. there was, like, an uh, incident where, you know, absolutely. But the problem is the way they go about it, right? Uh, the police, like, the intervention of the police, to the fact that, you know, maybe there should have been more muscled language from Valérie Plante, where I'm sure if you polled a lot of her supporters, her base, I'm not talking about, you know, people, suburbanites and stuff like that, that, you know, for them, homelessness doesn't exist and they just want to be in their Lexuses or whatever, you know, SUVs and like pass through Montreal. And it's like, oh my God, you know, Montreal is so dangerous. There's mm-hmm. too many homeless people. Um, but I'm talking about people that actually live in Montreal um, and uh, you and, and Projet Montréal's main base. Like most people would say, that was not the way to go about that, mm-hmm. you know? The, the, the eviction of the... The uh, eviction, yeah. because even if the eviction, quote-unquote, was necessary to for security reasons, whatever, it's the fact that, you know, Valérie Plante could have gone down there and said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not proceeding with an eviction until we have on the table concrete offers from the federal and provincial governments mm-hmm. to make sure that in the next years... We're going to have housing, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to have emergency housing. We're going to have whatever, you know, mm-hmm. after the Second World War, Canada went on the biggest and most ambitious building housing, building of housing in, in history. You were talking about mm-hmm. Benny Farm. Mm-hmm. You have a whole section on the map in Saint Laurent, uh, which is called wartime housing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, a whole section. Like it's like, I don't know how many hectares or whatever, you know, of, a of, lot. of, of, of social housing. Um, so quote unquote for veterans, right? Mm-hmm. That was built. It wasn't built by, well, there was developers that were involved, but it was built by Canada Housing Corp, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like public governments are coming to this fight um, with a spoon most of the time. It's a knife fight. Mm-hmm. You're coming with a spoon and then you're complaining that you have a spoon and that's all you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a bazooka, like, right there waiting mm-hmm. in the car, but you don't want to use, you don't want to employ that. You don't yeah, want to use yeah, that yeah. because that would be really bad for the people that are coming with knives, which are the developers, which are, you know, uh, uh, you know, the people that are profiting from this crisis. Sure. And there's a lot of them that are profiting from this crisis. And, and you're showing up with a spoon and it seems like you're showing up with a spoon because you want to show up with a spoon at this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I like, I really like that image. Cause it's like, uh, I think you paint this picture of like, the kind of uh, antagonist, or at least in this terms of like a fight, right? You have like the city, you have these like actors who are 
benefiting from this crisis. People who are engaged in uh, battle against, at least. And I, 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 what I like about this picture is like there's this... It's, it's like the city and governments have this option, right, to use the bazooka to actually come to this fight better prepared. But instead, they hold whatever sympathy for the assailants, for the other people. And they're like, oh, you know what? Let me like, let me show up to the knife fight with a spoon instead of the actual thing that would help me win this fight. And that would actually secure more wins for like the public. So so like the city, again, going back to jurisdiction and stuff like that, the city doesn't have a lot of um, legal powers. Like they don't have leverage necessarily legally to do a lot of things. They have, well, I mean, they have the leverage to evict uh, uh, a tent city, right? That's. But they have the leverage on a PR level to mobilize people that agree with these issues on these issues. And we haven't seen that from Proje mm-hmm. What we have seen from Proje Moyan, and this is like from, I was involved heavily in Proje Moyan in 2013. We had uh, Jason Prince here from Concordia uh, that was running for mayor of the Sudwest. Jason Prince that wrote extensively about free transportation. Great book. And... Uh, you know, there was even this article in the TE in BC about how, you know, Proje was this great, you know, agglomeration of so many different um, progressive elements and just people that came from so many different walks of life with so many different social issues. Um, and you really felt, even under Bergeron, right, that this was kind of like this political startup, a little bit like the Greens in Germany when they started uh, in the 1970s, which was mm-hmm. like this rebellion, this kind of like, okay, we're going to use all of these urban issues, to kind of like put emphasis on, you know, we can have communities that are sustainable, we can have communities that fight against poverty, we can have communities that fight against discrimination, all of this, you know, and so that 2013 campaign, although Bergeron was a terrible, absolutely terrible leader and actually held a lot of right wing views, um, notably the fact that he said in the debate that he was going <laughs> to put all of the homeless people in buses and, and ship them out of Montreal. That's um, not okay. And that's why he went and joined Kodea after. Um, but but there was that kind of like feel to, to it, say. right? 2017, I think there was a feel oh, yeah. to it too, mm-hmm. you know, where Valérie was the underdog fighting against Coderre. It was like, you know, uh, what Montreal is really wanting. Amb- this big ambitious project, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. going to do blue bonnets. Yeah, you know, yeah, we're yeah, going to yeah. build all this social housing blue yeah, bonnets. Yeah, yeah. We're going to say no. The old, the, old, uh, the old racetrack. The old racetrack yeah, in... Yeah, in, yeah, in Cote like, yeah. um, We're going to basically say uh, no to the baseball stadium. Uh, Eventco had came out that year, right? Where like half of, and it's funny because, we're, you know, now there's the casino announcement, whatever. But like Eventco came out that year in that election. And there was a formula, the electric formula. F, uh, the F- the F- E or. Yeah, yeah the yeah, F-E. Yeah. And, and all of these things where it's like, oh, our city's being taken over by corporations. Then Nicodera only cares about corporations. And so obviously I'm not going to say that Proje Montréal is as bad as the Nicodera because that's really difficult to, to, to match. Um, but, but it does seem that anytime you talk about an issue with people from Proje Montréal that defend the record, they're like, they get into technocratic discourse mm. about stuff mm-hmm. it's like oh no but you don't understand the operational budget of the city oh no but you don't understand this oh no but you don't understand the legalese behind all of that mm-hmm. and so you know it's we elected a movement that became a technocratic government um that basically sidelines what was the most important part of Proje Montréal, which was the political movement aspect of it, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, re- I think going back to what you were saying before about, um, uh, uh, was it the uh, the eviction of uh, 
the homeless encampment in Hushlai uh, because I believe that's on city property too, right? And you're saying yep. you're you're. I think there's this, there's what happened, which was the uh, firefighters came in, police came in, they cordoned off the area, and they just kind of like tore down the tents and kind of like apparently like, there was some level of like oh you know no it was kind of done like you know we gave them advance warnings you know it was kind of like something that they knew was kind of going to happen, and there was some level of like whatever like um I guess uh. I don't know what to call it, like patients from like some social workers who were extended to them. But then I think I really like this alternative uh, version of that that you're painting where it's like, no, you could have, that could have been an opportunity to kind of be like, hey, like this is like, this is like a real symptom of this larger crisis. And instead of uh, uh, taking, instead of using force muscle against the people who are victims of this crisis, let's use this as a rallying cry against like, like a, a, a federal government or provincial governments to try and get like more for them right there rather than just kind of coalescing to these forces that want these people kind of out of there. It's like, I really wonder sometimes, and I have like a really good friend who's a doctor in the army, so he's going to hate me for this, but like, I really wonder what the Canadian army does sometimes. Like I, I'm at loss to like why there's this, and I know it's people in the army will be like, there's not enough money and whatever, but <laughs> too much for me for what I see them doing. Yeah. Um, but it's like, if the Canadian, if, if Valérie Plant went down and said, okay, like we need housing now, Mm-hmm. And we have this space, and we're going to build housing so that's secure, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, why didn't they put the army to work? Sure, you know? like a sort of a like, like a civil, like a the yeah. engineer corps kind of the, the like engineer thing. corps. Like, it, like even with regards to like the water, uh, and I'm not even going to get into the whole First Nation stuff. But like, what do we consider as a crisis? Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how, so everybody's talking about a crisis. We've been talking about a crisis of homelessness, of housing for years, mm-hmm. and we're doing nothing. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the city is. Uh, tr- uh, so, I mean, I think this is a good uh, segue to uh, the next slide, please. So, this is, uh, I guess, uh, one of the how do we say solutions or attempts. Uh, to- <laughs> He's laughing. Uh, solutions or attempts uh, towards curbing the housing crisis um, that uh, the city administration set up. So, there was a there was a new house. There was a two years. Uh, two years ago, there was a housing bylaw. Uh, Valerie Plante administration said this bylaw would lead to the construction of six hundred new uh, social housing units per year. Um, this this was uh, and the number where, and the number is the number is zero because mm-hmm. developers, all the developers, because uh, the bylaw, there's no there's no muscle to the bylaw. There's nothing about the bylaw that um, forces people to do it. Forces developers rather to like construct social affordable housing. Uh, instead, it's like you either build the affordable housing or you pay like a fee. Every developer chose to pay a fee. Um, then the, some people might say, "Oh, like with the fees raised, maybe you can like build something, you know, out of that." It's uh, twenty four point five million raised. Uh, most critics say this is far, far. I mean, as much as a, I mean, that's a very large number. I would love to have that amount, but uh, in terms of like <laughs> tackling a, a housing Who price, wouldn't, I mean, you know, <laughs> I would go to the casino with free, that amount. Yeah. I would no, stay at the hotel don't. casino. Don't. <laughs> I will. I will not be doing that. Um, that money is uh, that twenty four five point uh, five million raised from those fees is hardly enough to tackle the crisis. It's hardly enough on a uh, a governmental level as well to even build something uh, impactful that would kind of uh, curb the crisis. Uh, Plant defended the bylaw. Uh, she argued that developers would be more likely to build social housing uh, if the Quebec government was willing to provide any money to support projects. Something it has not done. Um, yeah. So I think I mean this ties into what you're saying before about how like. Uh, you have you have this municipal government that's um that says their hands are kind of tied, uh, and they're I think this is a good example of showing up with a spoon, right? Where it's like, 
I mean, you, it's, showing, it's showing up with a spoon. I don't, I, I, I don't think that there's a lot necessarily that the, that, that the, the city can necessarily do in the sense that I don't know, how, like, could they impose, like, what could they actually impose as, um, you know, like, uh, kind of on, on developers, if developers didn't respect stuff, I don't know to what extent they have that, uh, coercive, like, you know, ca capacity to coerce them into doing it, mm -hmm. obviously, obviously. And with this being said, we get back into what, like we were talking about before, which is okay. But it seems like you've been playing, it seems like we've been playing nice with developers and we've been playing nice with the folks that have been profiting off of a crisis, which by the way, if you're profiting off of a crisis, you don't want the crisis to end. No, right. Exactly. So like you're asking people to help you end a crisis that they're profiting on. Like, I, I, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Like, if mm -hmm. I'm profiting off of a crisis and you're asking me to help me profit off of a crisis, it's like somebody who started a fire, the firemen or fire people asking somebody who started a fire to help them put out the fire. Sure, sure. You know sure, what I mean? Sure, sure. So it's like, it, it, it's basically that, right? And, and so the city is taking this approach, which is like, and, and I'll go back to like Yanis Varoufakis, when he talks about anything in politics, you can't just have a uh, plan A because when plan A is done. So, for example, now this was plan A. This was the big announcement. This is what was going to build 600 units of housing uh, per year in Montreal, of social housing per year in Montreal or affordable housing. Um, and it hasn't. What's plan B? Mm -hmm. Like, how, how do we move towards that goal knowing that this mechanism hasn't worked? Um, is it a uh, fining? developers is it saying basically that you know um developers like you know will not be able to build if they don't build you know a certain amount of housing in every project like projects won't be approved just straight up won't mm -hmm. be approved mm -hmm. by the city if you don't have this it's not about putting money in a slush fund it's about just not approving uh, housing products from developers that do not agree to the minimum of 20%. And it was supposed to be 2020, right? It was supposed to be yeah. 20 affordable and 20 social. Um, and so like the, the difference between the two is also that affordable, like the definition of affordable is very loose, very loose. I think in Vancouver, know? they tried to define affordable in something like two grand a month. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all have that to spend on rent. Um, but, but like, so, so that, that's the thing, right? Like, what is plan B? And so if you go to Pojimalian, they'll probably tell you, well, plan B is not for us to decide, it's for the provincial and federal governments. And the big problem is the provincial and the federal governments. But it's kind of like, so it's funny, right? Because like people are really, I think people are really upset with issues of affordability right now. And a lot of people obviously are upset with housing. And so they're upset with Valérie Plante because they're like, Valérie Plante is not doing enough with housing mm -hmm. and the housing jurisdiction is within the municipal realm. And so I'm pissed at the person that could actually make it happen. And Valérie Plante says all the time, well, I can't make it happen. Mm -hmm. But then she doesn't say who can make it happen. Or she doesn't actually spell it out. It's like, we haven't received an envelope from the Quebec government. They received an envelope apparently this year, I think in the biggest envelope they ever received for, for police um, from uh, the Quebec government. Mm -hmm. uh, and how about... They said, well, we don't want this money for police because it's not a priority. Our mm -hmm. priority is housing. Mm -hmm. We want that money for housing. Mm -hmm. You know? They're they're playing along. They're Well, it just seems like it's this dance, right? It's this dance on three levels of government. In in other jurisdictions, like mostly throughout the world, 
you have municipal parties that are affiliated with provincial parties that are affiliated with federal parties. Sure, you have like a sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Sure. So it's like you're not going to play ball in the United States with the Republicans. Mm -hmm. And you can talk about how polarized and polarizing that is. Mm -hmm. But at the same time here, it seems like the municipal governments want to be able to receive the goodies from the provincial government so they won't criticize the provincial government. And then the federal government, you know, like they play off the federal government and the provincial government. And sometimes they receive stuff from the federal government. And if they're nice with the federal government, they're going to, you know what I mean? Sure, sure, and it's sure, it's like sure, this sure. dance where it's just like, that's Constantly not, deflecting, yeah. kind of blame or... And, and it's like, this is not what people want. And I think the frustration and, I mean, democracy is now a joke in the sense that like municipal democracy, like what what is the percentage? Of participation? No, it's it's so low. It's like uh, I believe it's like less than like fifty percent. Exactly. In Ontario, mm -hmm. last election was like almost uh, one Ontarian out of two didn't go to the polls. Yeah. Um, and in Quebec, like it was it wasn't that much uh, better. The last federal election, atrocious. Of course. Like that because people because now we have these three levels of government that are just like you don't find who could actually do anything, and everybody's saying, "Well, I can't do anything. It's the other person," and so people just don't want to vote. And mm -hmm. I understand, you mm -hmm. know. Yeah, yeah, um, I want to talk a bit about the uh, the premier Legault. Uh, this week, uh, Quebec Solidaire uh, co spokesperson co spokesperson Gabriel Nadeau Dubois uh, asked a question to the premier. Um, this is a just a general translation of uh, what he said. He said, "So I challenge the prime minister, the the premier today, to answer my question without scapegoating. My question is simple. In light of the figures revealed yesterday, does the premier regret having denied the existence of a housing crisis during his first mandate?" Uh, Legault's immediate uh, response uh, was, uh, well, I believe uh, we've gone up to 300,000 temporary migrants this year. Um, so his, uh, uh, he's trying to, he's trying to, I guess, put the blame uh, immediately. Immediately, it's, it's funny because he's like, I don't want you to scapegoat this. So like, tell me about like whether you regret. And he's like, I'm going to scapegoat. <laughs> Where he talks about, and the other, other. I mean, I mean, that's his, that's his modest operandi. Of you course, know? Like, of course. Like, that's what he does all the time. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's so, part of it. It's second nature. Of course. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, it's, it's all he knows. It's the only language he knows. So essentially right now he's, he's, he's blaming the increase of uh, temporary uh, uh, immigrants in Quebec to the housing crisis. I think you also saw this with, uh, I think Duranceau said something very similar where, uh, and PSPP. And of course, of course. Uh, I mean, that's just the whole, uh, that's, yeah, that's yeah. the playbook, right? Yeah. Where uh, they're blaming. And, uh, yeah, and you know, of course, of course. Um, I, I guess I want to ask you, what, what, what do you make of this? <laughs> It's crazy, right? And I'm going to go back to Proyev just for a second because he made that. And, and, and seriously, like in terms of PR, it was like a crazy video, right? Where he was like a, the, the big short, like that movie. Yeah. Like he kind of goes and he like explains all of these like, you know. And it's like if you don't understand that the reason behind the crisis in housing is that we are using housing as a market for profit, mm -hmm. which makes that housing is a commodity. Mm -hmm. And commodities become more value like you add more value to commodities if it becomes more scarce mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so why would you have an incentive to build housing if you can just sit on it and it's going to go up in value mm -hmm. right and that's what we've seen right a whole generation of of, of people have become their their retirement plan was buying a house mm -hmm. they bought a house at 40k and now it's 350 400 sometimes 500 in vancouver it's maybe even a million of course right yeah. you know so it's like it's like we're, we're here and we're talking about everything and now we're 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 in this huge like you know oh well we accepted 300,000 temporary residents and we don't have enough um we don't have enough uh uh space for them temporary residents okay 
Like it, it's important to go to that whole like temporary residence like uh, aspect of things. They're foreign temporary workers most of the time, right? Foreign temporary workers where they basically um, are not uh, uh, workers that uh, we're, we're getting with the slides. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sorry. We're good. I'm trying, no, to, I'm trying to make sure we have the right slide. slide that's good. Up. Yeah, that's fine. That's a good one. Thank you. So, so yeah, and the vacancy rates are ridiculous. I mean, we have vacancy rates in Gaspésie that are like ridiculous, like 2% or whatever. That's not Montreal. Mm-hmm. So, and there's no, and as Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois was saying, there's not a lot of immigrants in, in Gaspésie. Um, but that's the thing, right? It's like, we don't have, so we've been trying with the market to incentivize, mm-hmm. right? Developers into building. They don't want to build because of what I said, of scarcity, of, you know, it's become a commodity, it's become a portfolio, it's become, you know, uh, a stock that you have in your portfolio that will go up with time. Like that, that's one of the things that somebody said during COVID, they were like the best investment, any investment on the stock market uh, in COVID went down. People mm-hmm. lost now they made it back if they kept those stocks, but they lost most, they were wiped out. Mm-hmm. Millions, hundreds of, of millions, trillions of dollars were wiped out during COVID, except on housing. Mm-hmm. Housing went up. Mm-hmm. Housing went up because you can force somebody legally to pay you rent. It's an investment, but you have a return on that investment that's enforceable legally, mm-hmm. which is called rent, mm-hmm. right? You don't have... Uh, stocks that are dividends on stocks and stuff like that, you can't enforce that legally. Actually, legally, it's up to, in most cases, some cases different, but it's up to, and it depends on the contracts for certain stuff, but it depends on the corporation to give you a dividend or not, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Rent is not like that, right? And so somebody said, you know, it's crazy that uh, landowners, uh, landlords, you know, think that they can just have a return that will never, ever be altered. Mm-hmm. But that's what they have. Right. Today, you have a percentage that goes up every year, whether you make repairs, if you make repairs, it's even more. Mm-hmm. So you have a return that is like, you know, so why would you build more housing? To do what? Right. Why right, would you right. take that risk when you don't want to take that risk? In the first place, you can just sit on your asset and your asset's going to go up in terms of value, mm-hmm. in terms of a rent that's always coming back. And that's where you know, this this fiction of the market doesn't work. That's why you need public entities to come in and to break up uh, monopoly situations. This is not something that comes from Marx. This is something that comes from Adam Smith. Mm-hmm. who's supposed to be the, mm-hmm. the father of, of modern liberal capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have the whole immigrant situation, right? Which is crazy, right? Because the people that are making money off of investments in 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 housing are people like Legault mm-hmm. and most of his ministers that mm-hmm. are, are are land uh landlords or real estate right? i mean like or real estate or real estate in trouble because she real was giving a special like fast access deals to like her like business partner who's in real estate which right? is absolutely conflict of interest absolutely mm-hmm. ridiculous but that's it right you imagine the person that is supposed to be resolving the situation has a direct interest in the situation, the problem not being resolved, mm-hmm. is the Minister of Housing, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, but but to come back to this issue of, of immigration, which is really, really important right now because everybody is, is uh, using this uh, as, like, you know... Um, uh, a scapegoat. A scapegoat, but also, like, political football and stuff like that. Like, okay, <laughs> how is it that folks... Like, immigration has always existed 
in Canada. One, two, you know, immigration numbers, yes, have gone up, but significantly gone up. I, I don't actually, you know, the numbers are not there to say that it was a significant increase. What did go up, though, was all of the money that was funneled into medium, small, and obviously big businesses, mm-hmm. uh, you know, multinational giant uh, corporations uh, during COVID. And that, what if you have a lot of money sitting there, you don't want it to be inactive, mm-hmm. you invest it. Mm-hmm. What are you going to invest it in? Real estate. Real estate. It's, it's the best it's the return. It's one, like you were saying. It's the yeah. best return. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's right? guaranteed returns, protected by law. Exactly. You know? So if that money is going into real estate, obviously real estate values are going to go up. Obviously mm-hmm. rent is going to go up. And obviously you have no incentive to build because if you build, you're bringing the value down. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting that uh, it's not, I'll say it's not only the Legault government that plays into this, right? It's like, I feel like Trudeau also plays into this when there's just like talks about like, uh, uh, especially when people frame the conversation around the housing crisis in terms of like, oh, there's too many like foreign buyers, right? Where I think just this week, like, uh, there was like, I think there's like an article in like, oh, it's the Atlantic with the Guardian about how Trudeau is making it so like uh, British expats can buy houses here, right? And there's this framing of like, and and not in the way of it's 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 kind of similar to the immigrant thing where it's like you have the um, people who are uh, citizens and you have the people who are foreign who are coming here and they're the reason that the prices are going up, right? Where it's like oh, it's because our they're making the supply so much smaller because of their presence, but it's like I, I think you saw this in like uh, uh, Vancouver as well, right? Where you had some kind of um. Well, yeah, the whole thing with Hong Kong, right? Like of course, America, of course. Right? So it's the idea that it's like Chinese money that's kind of doing this. But, 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 but the, f- the fact of the matter in that is that they allowed that to happen and a lot of people profited off of that because it was money that China wanted to get back because for mm. the longest time, Hong Kong was a money laundering capital mm-hmm. in China, mm-hmm. right? And then through the casinos, mm-hmm. what they did is they opened casinos and they started laundering the money. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and then that money went into the housing market in in, in, in Vancouver. So it's like, and, and that was all public, by the way. That was the BC Liberals were a hundred. They're not called Liberals anymore, probably because of that scandal. Because like the, they don't the do, names tainted. They don't do too now. Well, they're United. Yeah. They're whatever they're called. Um, but 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 <laughs> it, 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 it's crazy, right? And we're talking about we're talking about you know golden visas. Canada was the first country with Australia, I think, in the world to go about golden visas, mm-hmm. which was, was basically you pay a certain amount of money. And you have you have Canadian residency, and you can buy property in Canada. Oh, sure, sure, right, sure, sure, sure. So w- w- when we're talking about foreign investors, like we have corporations that are foreign investors, we have individuals that are foreign investors, but it's not temporary residents. It's not the people that are coming, like you know, for economic reasons, for a better future for their family in Canada. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's like I. I I mean, I don't even want to want to look at like how much property probably these folks like in our political class have abroad. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so when we're talking about foreign, it's there's there's a class of foreign investors in the world, and that's probably the one percent of all of the world's population, even probably less, yeah. that own property. Most people in this country can't afford property in this country, mm-hmm. and so th- these kinds of laws, I feel like they're about. They're not about protecting some general population from foreign buyers. They're they're about protecting the the people who have the money to buy property here from other people who can. It's like reducing the exactly. competition, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, and that's usually kind of like the concern of like nationalists, where it's like they're worried about uh, big money, in, like uh, international uh, players coming and like disrupting their own like little like ecosystem of like the market here, right? But also, we're not talking about corporations. We are like not what about what we know you're right, you're right. is that there are investment based 
housing corporations that literally all they do is be hedge funds for huge investors. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. bought up Detroit. They bought up San Francisco. They bought up anywhere they thought were gentrification, et cetera. They literally go in 2008 after the 2008 crisis. And nobody talks about that. But, you know, the, you were buying $20 uh, blocks in Detroit for nothing. Right? right. And these corporations, they saw an opportunity in that because they're like vulture funds, basically, for housing. And there are some of the corporations that just in the Centre Sud, right next to, to, to Berriucam, they bought up a lot of a lot of space. I have a friend who was uh, Renault evicted by somebody who had their corporation in New York, and then they have a shell corporation in Canada, so that they respect "quote unquote" Canadian law or Quebec law, right? I'm trying to find. Uh, I can't find it. There's something. I mean, I wanted to add London, Ontario, to that list of cities as well because I think it was found that there was like a huge percentage of single-family homes in London, Ontario, that's just owned by one company, right? And you saw this during the pandemic of them just like sweeping up for exactly the reasons you're saying, right? Where it's like with these, when you get a house, when you get to own a house, you have like a guaranteed kind of income from it. I mean, of course, if that's yeah. like, if people are willing to pay the price, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch our topic now. Like just just before the switching, how immoral <laughs> is it that you have a corporation? That is essentially only about holding houses. Like, how immoral, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, in Canada, we accepted that healthcare should not be private. Like, we shouldn't have private healthcare corporations. Maybe we should start thinking about not having private uh, housing corporations that they're only there to hold houses. Right. That's it. Right, right. That the, these these companies are exist to make profit off something that should be uh, a right, right? Like, like shelter. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you talked about casinos in Hong Kong. I want to talk about casinos in Montreal. <laughs> Can we switch to the casino slide, it's please? It's less, less exciting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've been to this casino. So the Montreal casino. I've been once, yeah. Yeah. I know I, mean, I didn't get in. I think I didn't have my ID or something. Oh, yeah? Yeah, maybe. How old were you? I mean, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't get in. I had a beard at the time. You had a beard at yeah. the time, too? Yeah. Yeah, I would have let you in. I know. I'm going to let you right in. I'm like, take my money. Start go, go to the slot. But you would you would let me in a lot of places. Of course, yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's no, just, I, I, places I shouldn't be. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's I, I will say that's not you. It's just that's just me. I just can't be like I can't care. I'll mm -hmm. just be like, yeah, whatever. Go in. <laughs> I'm I'm I let everyone into whatever business I'm in charge of. <laughs> um, be careful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, Montreal has a nice little casino owned by a lot of Quebec or state uh, uh, lottery uh, corporation. Uh, Crown Corporation, uh, the building, which uh, used to be, uh, I think, the French pavilion during Expo 67, they turned into a casino. Of course, it was a French one. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> the building, uh, just recently, there's news from La Quebec. They are planning to open up a hotel right next to the casino. So this hotel would be a, a low-profile building of roughly four stories that will sit on top of the casino's underground parking facilities next to the casino. Um, this project has received a bit of criticism uh, from independent uh, city councillor uh, Craig Sauvé. Craig Sauvé described it as a completely unacceptable commodification of public space. Valerie Plant, um, in uh, defense of the project, said this hotel is not eating up any green spaces. It's being built on the existing infrastructure of the casino. The height of the hotel will be limited to preserve views and respect the environment of the park itself. It's a hotel on a human scale. Great. 
That's what we need. <laughs> yeah, we want human scale uh, uh, hotels. Um, Niall, what do you? Are you excited about this project? Are you going to be staying? Leftists, they don't even want hotels anymore. Like yeah, millennials yeah. are canceling everything. Mm-hmm, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like yeah, hotels yeah. too. It's millennials like, it's aren't crazy. Di- right, they're like not buying diamonds. Paper. Yeah, they're not buying diamonds. This, they're know, busy buying like, lattes, avocado toast, and exactly. not going to the hotel casino. And not going to hotels. Yeah, 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 like yeah. what? Uh, what a generation! Like it's unacceptable. You know? Do you think uh, if you went to the hotel and you were blocked from going there? Would you have gone to the... No, sorry. If you if you try... I'm going to rephrase that. If you tried going to the casino back then and you were blocked for some reason, even though... Well, no, I can just go to the hotel. No, you can just go to the hotel. Like, do you think they're going to block me if I'm staying at the hotel? Well, probably not. Probably not. Probably not. You can probably right. just get a drink. I could just go get my ID at the... At the hotel. <laughs> you know, this 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 segment, I was going to be very excited about uh, talking about why maybe this should not be built, but now I just, I just want to go to the hotel. <laughs> you want to go to the hotel? No, I'm just joking. I was, I'm playing around. Do you, do you think you have money to go to that hotel? I, I just want to see what the night I'm at the sh- hotel I can ask for a glass like. of water at the bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's what I, that's what I, 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 I wear my too. Village de Valor suit. I go to the, the, the bar and I'm like, give me a... Because a, for sure, I mean, this hotel is for Montrealers in general. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. it's like it's like Montrealers that want to get out of the city. It's going to be a little bit of a <laughs> yeah. Rupee. Let's get out of town. Let's <laughs> let's go. Let's go. Let's, let's go over the bridge yeah. halfway. <laughs> let's go over the bridge halfway and stay at the hotel there next to the casino. That's absolutely what we want to do. So. This hotel is, uh, uh, it's not a lot of Quebec's first. Uh, they have uh, two other hotels in their real estate portfolio, which they were trying to grow, um, I think, for reasons uh, similar to what we were saying before. Of course, real estate is a very hot commodity, uh, a little too hot, if you ask me. Uh, they have the Lac Lemy Hotel Casino uh, in Gatineau, and now they're building this. Uh, the Lac Lemy one is actually, like, massive. It's like, it's, like a, it's like a real, like, tower, and I guess this one is, like, I feel like Valerie Plant is trying to be like, you know, it's not like, it's not this big, ugly tower. It's going to be like, there's going to be some grass on the roof. It encapsulates, it encapsulates perfectly like Pojimoya's approach to a lot of stuff. It's tell me, like, tell me. Well, on, on several levels. It's like, it's a hotel and that screams corporatism, but it's okay because we're going to put a roof garden on top of it. And maybe Lufa Farms, who have terrible business practices. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. With union busting and stuff like that. They're going to be able to have a green garden on top of the hotel. Nice. So it's actually going to be... And there's going to be a bike path. Of course. To the hotel. <laughs> okay. Like I like love biking full, on my way to full, gambling. Full bike path on the way to the hotel. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you know, like it, it's not going to take up existing green space, but we're not going to add green space to it, except of course, you know, the garden roof. Of course. Um, and yes, there's going to be a bylaw that's going to make it that uh, the millionaires that are coming for Formula One cannot use their private jets or helicopters to land on top of the hotel. But if the millionaires and do want to land a helicopter on top of the hotel. It's got to be a green helicopter. It's got to be a green helicopter. Absolutely. And they have to come by um, Tesla. Oh, yeah, 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 you yeah. Know? Right? Oh, yeah. So it's oh, like yeah. this. No, but seriously, this encapsulates like so many things about Projet approach, which is one, it kind of like when they got the criticism, their answer was like, well, we had to do it because, you know, it's like, it's just, it's just like what are you going to say? What are you going to say? Yeah. No. Like, what? Are you, no. You could just say no. Mm-hmm. Like, you could say, if you can make an underground parking lot, right, because they're making, make an underground parking lot mm-hmm. and open up that space to the public, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, why should we, and we were talking about Eventco before, I mean, they completely destroyed uh, that whole section where Picnic Electronique used to be 
right? Where there's the monument and stuff like that. And they created it into this huge, like, festival place for, you know, all of Invenco's, like, summer. Um, Oceaga. Oceaga events and stuff like that. MPL. Exactly, you know? And it's like, you could have just done that in a way with a lot of public money by the way i would like to see what the how much public money is going into this too because i mean we didn't really talk about it and they make it seem like it's the casino in lot of quebec that is just to, uh, doing this but there's going to be money directly or indirectly like mm-hmm. in tax uh cuts you know uh through like oh because they did the, the, the green garden mm-hmm. the green garden um, so they're going to pay $10 million less in taxes this right, year right, because right. some kind the, of subsidies you know, for that, the, the CO2 that the, the two people the, the, the amounts of two people that they're going of CO2 emissions that they're going to retain in that garden is worth $10 million, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say it's also like, I mean, a lot of Quebec money is kind of public money, right? Cause they make it off of like, whatever, like any kind of like, well, I mean, little Quebec is people that are buying like literally like, you know, yeah, that are gambling or whatever. Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's basically a tax, they're but just, it's like, we just don't funding this little hotel exactly for millionaires for for f1 um but also like you know yeah that's the approach right it's like so you could you could have done we could have done something else and we decided to commodify it and we decided to give it to a private corporation when it's like maybe we should be thinking about any opportunity to bring stuff back into the public domain and to give access to most like if we wanted them like you know this whole idea of project moya at the start was to make you know, public space more democratic, right? Mm-hmm. Like you want to, you know, uh, extend the realm of democracy to every space in the city. And so, mm-hmm. you know, bike paths were part of it, making the city more walkable, all of that, all stuff we agree with. But we have to go to the extra mile. You know, we have to go to the extra mile and actually think about how do you take corporations or this like for-profit mentality out of the city. And I don't think, I think Pojimalia thinks that we can keep that tension, right? Which is make the city more affordable, make the city more walkable, more livable, and at the same time, uh, give the keys to corporations. Here it's Mm -hmm. a public entity, which is Loto Quebec, which is like, you know, private, public, whatever corporation, but still. It's not quite like a public interest project, though. Exactly. It's it's, it's It's for profit. Yeah, it's a for-profit interest project. It's for, let's say, like people who would want to be right next to a casino, people who would want to be on uh, Notre Dame. And like you're saying, right, it's it's, it's precisely either for people who want proximity to these festivals that happen in the summer, uh, including F1, right? It's not quite like F1. I don't think of F1 as like a a people sport, you know? (laughs) No, for sure not. Yeah. I mean, it draws we, a certain kind of crowd. We, we've also we've also seen reports saying that F one doesn't actually bring a lot to the city, except uh, you know, sex trafficking, uh, all of these, all of these, like you know, a lot of a lot of uh, uh, um, crime actually related, and you know, and then we talk about protests or whatever as them being like the worst. But you know, the the idea that you know, F1 should be, is not necessarily beneficial for the city. Mm-hmm. And it's just beneficial for this, like, again, 1% elite that decides to travel class, throughout the yeah. world. And, you know. Yeah, this seems to kind of uh, try to, it sets up a little, a nicer cushion for them, you know. Exactly. Rather than anything for a public good. Uh, I want to move on to uh, our next topic. Oh, I'll go back to that, actually. We have a little picture of a, a little. That's what it's going to be. You that's, see, that's, you see, you've got the you've got the green garden, the Lufa so, Green Garden so for on top. Our, I need to try and right? move my way with the microphone. So for our listeners, uh, right now we're looking at a, a picture of uh, like an artist rendering of uh, what the casino hotel might look like, and it's like I don't know, like a first year architect student like idea of like a cool place. It's like it's very low key, you know. It's like the hotel, the casino is still the highest thing in the in in, in on the island. 
Uh, it's just sort of surrounded by this like low key, very like low profile, uh, flat hotel. You can barely tell there's a hotel there. You know, I look at that, I'm like, oh, that looks like whatever, like uh, some kind of really complicated like public park. But no, it's actually going to be a, a hotel. That's the beauty of it. It's like it looks like it's public, but then you get there and they're like, no, sorry, this is only for millionaires. Like, how did you come here by private jet? Or? Me today? No, I'm talking about the people. No, in, sorry, in the hotel. If right. you didn't come by private jet, you can't. You know. I can't go there. No, you can't. Oh, damn. You can go to the casino. I took the BMW though, if you have today. Your ID. I took the BMW today. Okay. You're going to make that joke again? <laughs> the bus metro walk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the next slide? Yeah, so that's another quote by Robert Plant. We can go to the next one. It's great that I remembered all these slides. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Next slide, please. Oh, yeah. oh, my God. Yeah. The breaking point. Uh, yes, I guess this ties into a bit what we were saying before about, uh, yeah, yeah, I think I, I, I put that in the wrong section, but anyways, uh, uh, Quebec, uh, Lego, uh, Lego, writes to, uh, Trudeau and he's like, dear Trudeau, not actually, but like, I mean, not actually, he didn't say the, these following words, but he's essentially saying, um, uh, the excessive number of asylum seekers is causing Quebec to be at a breaking point. Um, this kind of talks to, this kind of speaks to what we were saying before yeah. about the kind of, did, did you see today that they're going to now, uh, Pierre, uh, Pierre, Paul, Saint-Plamond, uh, Paul Saint-Pierre, Paul PSPP, PSPP, the leader of the uh, yeah, Parti it, It's too long and it's useless. Um, he's useless. Um, <laughs> the, the, they're, they want a referendum. They want a referendum on immigration. So now in Quebec, uh, we're finally getting a referendum, uh, 30 odd years after yeah, yeah. 1990, no longer 1995, about, but no longer not about, about Sovereignty. No, no, no. About if we like immigrants or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knowing that at the majority of those people voting in a referendum, crushing majority, nobody's indigenous. Yeah. Um, so we're all kind of immigrants. But don't right. don't say that no, too much. Of course loud, not. Okay. Of course not. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. we want to have our referendum about how racist we are. Okay. That's all right. All right. Yeah. Well, we're a little short on time. So let's go to the uh, the next slide, please. Ah, here we are. Here we are. All right. So, um, this is a uh, this is an older article, but I dug this up because uh, I kind of had a feeling this conversation would uh, go this way. Uh, talking about, uh, I think we talk about like technocrats. We talk about this kind of like progressive uh, sort of like I think I think um, I think tech companies a lot of times call themselves progressive, and there's this idea that they serve some kind of grand uh, process of like technology of like you know we're, like you know they're doing this work to like. Make our tools better. Make kind of life more convenient. That's for salvation. Us. Salvation through tech. Salvation through tech. Hallelujah. Exactly. That, that's like all of the problems in the world are going to be resolved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know? So um, I brought this up because uh, I think uh, you had uh, some things uh, you wanted to say about uh, entrepreneurial leftism. So here we have. Uh, uh, we're looking at this article. Uh, this is a uh, published back in uh, 2018. Uh, Amazon. Philip Couillard. And Valerie Plant, disappointed that Montreal, <laughs> Montreal's candidacy, candidacy was rejected. So this is back in 20... Uh, candidacy for what, though? That's what I'm saying. It's candidacy. So Montreal in uh, 2018 um, wanted to be a candidate to become Amazon's next headquarters city. Uh, this was a really interesting process. Uh, interesting usually for the worst ways. Uh, it was kind of like they had this like um, almost like a bidding. It was like a talent show. It's like a talent show. It's like a talent show. It's like show us how much tax dollars you can give us in public money. Except the judge is just like a terrible person. (laughs) Yeah, the judge was literally like Mr. Barnes in The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mr. Burns, exactly. It's like, um, 
Montreal is trying. Montreal, uh, here you have a current mayor, uh, Valerie Blount, uh, I believe in her first uh, first mandate. Uh, Philippe Couillard, the then uh, premier, both uh, expressing uh, disappointment that Montreal did not make the final cut for Amazon's new headquarters city. So yeah, Amazon was trying to, it was getting cities to pitch to become the next headquarters city. You had like a tons and tons of cities around the world like pitching. It was, it was literally like the Olympics, right? Yeah, there was so, like New York. There was like San Francisco, Seattle, San Francisco. I don't yeah, know. There was yeah, like yeah. a bunch Toronto, of cities. Toronto, Toronto, yeah, Vancouver, Toronto, Halifax. Toronto, uh, that's true. Yeah. Sault Ste. Marie even uh, put in that. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, that's, that's impressive. That's <laughs> Little Sault Ste. Marie. Um, Putting guess, Sault Ste. Marie on the map. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the Sioux. Evil Corp. The, yeah, you know? yeah, literally. Um, but that's back in the day when Amazon was hype, you know? Like before before we realized that the workers were pissing in bottles and doing their shifts because they couldn't. I think that was just coming out then, no? Yeah, we, we, we weren't there yet. No, we no, but more people we, we were like, oh, you know, Amazon, like, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it mean, was now, only like a bunch of like crazy leftists like us that were like, oh, Amazon's not, you know? Yeah, guys, maybe we should not be uh, letting workers piss in bottles and be uh, completely stressed at work. I mean, Amazon, uh, notorious for uh, just how they treat workers. Uh, tons of Amazon uh, locations trying to unionize. Yeah, the first one in Staten Island uh, last year that was able to unionize. Yeah. Uh, I believe there's a current driver, the Montreal one. There's attempts at the Alberta one, uh, Mississippi. Alabama. Alabama. Alabama, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, I mean, um, the way the way they have their system set up, like, like how do you think... Now, how do you think people can, how do you think a company can do same-day delivery? How, how do you, how do I think they yeah, can yeah, do yeah, same-day yeah, delivery? Yeah, 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 yeah. With temporary foreign workers. Yeah, there you go. Temporary foreign workers, uh, incredibly strict uh, 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 efficiency, like whatever, like rates that you have to be hitting with the number of packages you're, you're like packing and shipping. And of course, that's going to lead to injury. Uh, there's an incredible amount of injuries at these Amazon warehouses. And here we have Montreal being like, oh, please, please, please. Let Montrealers be the ones who are getting injuries. Um, not just that. Let's just like gentrify the whole city and turn it into, you know. This is true because this is not necessarily just for a, a, a warehouse where those kinds of injuries happen. No, this is for the smart city. Yeah, the smart city. Yeah. The smart city. So now, uh, what do you think about uh, these kinds of smart cities? What do you think about uh, when municipalities try to court these tech companies? Because Montreal has, to some mm. success, done that before, right? That's how we got uh, Ubisoft here. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. I pass it so to this them. is this is the point of the conversation where you brought me to this point so that my political career or whatever I I had aspired to at one point maybe perhaps is over. I with mean, with you, you feel because, the bar because again. because now you know it's going to be like entrepreneurial leftism. We're using all of these these big words, and then from that point on, it's like yeah, no, sorry, like you you, you can't like you're not down with corporate uh, Canada or corporate America. Like mm-hmm. we're, we're we're okay with socialism up until a point. Like you know, yeah, 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 yeah. you're sounding a lot like uh, you know Robespierre and Lenin right now. So like you, you both gotta, of them, you got to chill. You, but, you know, mix. But like. Um, <laughs> It's Rosa Luxemburg. Um, you're just going to throw them all just, out. Yeah, right just, now. Start just, just, just start saying yeah, names. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not going to answer the questions like that. Yeah, I'm going to yeah, get off yeah, the yeah. hook. You know what um, David Graeber had to say about this? I, uh, you know what? You know what? You know that other guy? Uh, I remember. Like, <laughs> you started this. <laughs> We're just name um, dropping leftists now. <laughs> I, I, so I was talking to you about this because... It's kind of the casino reminded me of this, mm-hmm. and it's probably a skeleton uh, in Projet Moyad's closet that nobody really wants to come out anymore, uh, especially since Chris Smalls and the whole team in Staten Island uh, sh- exposed to what extent Amazon is just like the worst 
corporation ever and that Jeff Bezos uh, Bezos decided that he was going to become a supervillain with uh, Elon Musk uh, and have that competition of who has the bigger rocket. And now everybody's like, we are not, uh, these are not people we should be looking up to, the gods of capitalism um, or late capitalism. But uh, this is kind of like the the, the approach that you have with with Projet Marianne, which is, so we're talking about housing and we're talking about homelessness. And one of the cities that actually assembles um, Montreal to a certain extent, San Francisco in many ways with a big university hub. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Montreal is actually bigger, but I mean, obviously, you know, Stanford and you have like a, a bunch of uh, of other universities uh, there. Silicon Valley kind of like comes out of that mm-hmm. um, ecosystem publicly funded, like almost 100% publicly funded. Um, and a city that was super progressive, right? San Francisco was known as this beacon of progressivism. Uh, you know, you had Harvey Milk. A lot of the the fight uh, for uh, queer rights starts uh, in, in San Francisco in the United States, but also just for the longest time was seen as like the most progressive city uh, in the United States. And now it's a hellscape. Mm-hmm. It's a hellscape where you basically have poop maps uh, that rich make about where there's human feces uh, across the city mm-hmm. because there's so many homeless people. Um, there's so many people that are in need of social housing, uh, that are in need of um, uh, affordable housing, whatever that definition is. <laughs> it might mean in San Francisco. Um, and, 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 you know, it's just... Uh, a hellscape, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's really like this contrast with the San Francisco of the generation of love or the summer of love or whatever. Uh, the I'm not, I was going to say the Black Panthers, they're across the Bay in Oakland, but there was still like all of these movements coming out of San Francisco, the Bay Area. And now it's just unlivable for most people, mm-hmm. right? Well, what, and, what do you think is the connecting point between them and us? Here the connecting point is what San Francisco's policy was, right? The policy, and not San Francisco necessarily, San Jose, which is right next to San Francisco, when the United States, and I was talking about this in, in the episode a little bit before, um, when it came on with Sarah from IJV, uh, the idea that, you know, you have these jurisdictions, these small jurisdictions that are going to like lower tax dollars, uh, tax like, um, you know, percentages or whatever tax rates uh, to such an extent to like have companies come. So like San, Fran- uh, San-, San Jose, uh, which is like not part of San Francisco kind of did that. Right. And so we've tracked it all of the Silicon Valley, all of this come in, you know, whatever. And Montreal is trying to do the same. And mm-hmm. Quebec's trying to do the same. Mm-hmm. As if this is a model that actually works. So this is kind of where you thought this conversation was going to go. But I guess I'm happy that we got to this point in the conversation to connect some of the dots here. Because you have this reaction within that makes no sense within progressive and governments in general. Mm-hmm. We criticize the fact that there's a housing crisis. And we're like, oh my God, like there's a housing crisis. We've been talking about it about years. A lot of people in the community organization, et cetera, have been talking about it for years. Now it's come to fruition. And and now all of a sudden they woke up just a few years ago. And even now, right, we're trying to court these big corporate entities to right. come that jack up uh, the price of housing. Gentrify uh, neighborhoods. That gentrify neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And then we're talking about immigration, as if immigration is the problem when you have corporate Canada and corporate America wanting to build smart cities. Like, I don't know what a dumb city is, but anyways, smart cities to basically house 
their workers and house like their 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 infrastructure and so we're going back to the factory towns of like you know the end of the 19th century where you know uh one company just owns the whole town exactly and utopian socialists would you know be like oh we need a company town because the workers are going to work the factories are going to have housing and all that but at least there was housing at that point Mm -hmm. these companies come they don't build anything. They build the infrastructure that they need, which, by the way, is heavily supported by public money. Mm-hmm. And then all of the, the you know, the negative impact, uh, they call it in, in, in capitalist lingo, uh, negative externalities of, of these things are, are left on public entities, right? Mm-hmm. But then they pick up through tax dollars and through downsizing government and handing off these things to Amazon um, or companies like Amazon, basically like they, they, they make even more profit. Mm-hmm. And so like just finishing on that, we have to ask ourselves today, you know, couldn't a public entity that actually was transparent, that actually, uh, you know, had some form of giving back to the communities in which they exist, um, could exist, like could take Amazon's place. Mm-hmm. And it could. We have Post Canada, right? We have a lot of like public entities that could take that place and could make communities more vibrant. And yet, instead of thinking about that, we have left-wing progressive governments that want to court basically uh, the most evil corporations in the world to come uh, under this veneer of progressivism, mm-hmm. which is left this entrepreneurialism, right? Mm-hmm. Which is this idea that the market can resolve the problems that the market creates. Right. Maybe there's a problem there, mm-hmm. you know? Right, yeah. Thanks. Thanks <laughs> <laughs> for coming to my you, TED Talk. You, you pre- <laughs> preempted the thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think, I think, I, think um, I, I really enjoy your points because I think all this stuff about like trying to uh, court like Amazon, trying to like, make space for these, uh, for like a lot of Quebec. But I do think there's something interesting about a lot of Quebec, right? Because you have this group that's like this um, kind of corporation that's supposed to be like publicly owned. But then like the question is, is, is it in, is this operations in public interest, right? Like, like, like the, I think it's, it's like, I would rather, of course, any money being made from like gambling in these casinos be going into public coffers. But then there's the thing of like, they do just kind of continue wherever like, these things of like gambling, they do kind of continue these things of like, uh, building this hotel, right? So, like, I, I, not to say that, like, any kind of, like, publicly owned version of Amazon, whether it's an extension of, like, the uh, can of post, can't do that. I just wonder. I just wonder if it's going to be... just the corporate... I, I, I think the whole question about that is the corporate model that you put in place, right? Sure. So, it's, like, the corporate model that is in place at, for example, Loto Quebec is a for-profit model. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the same just with public money. So, it's this idea of, like, okay, you're a public company, so you have to do some pro bono work here and there, but you can still make as much profit as you want and screw over people and make profit. You're just public, but, you know, do sure. some pro bono work, like, sure, sure, sure. greenwash this and that. Give Lufa Farms like a, a, a green garden in your hotel uh, for millionaires and mm-hmm. it's fine. Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's the model of governance that I think stays capitalist. It's not the idea like that doesn't mean they're actually public. You know what I mean? Sure, sure, like sure, you, sure, sure. You have, I understand the distinction you're trying to make. About you have that. to make – you have to the, – the model has to be different. And so you have to empower like you could have elected folks, right? Like elected – people to the board of governors, you know, because most of the time you look at the CEO of Post Canada, like was dropped, parachuted there 
to basically make post Canada into uh, either like there's two ways like post Canada is going to go. Either it's going to be so inefficient and they're doing it on purpose that they're going to just be like, oh, we can't deal with this like public, you know, entity. The public sector doesn't know how to do anything anymore. So let's just privatize it right. or uh, make it into like just uh you know, a normal company that still is owned by the government, but, you know, does everything like corporates possibly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I, I feel like there's, there's uh, Legault and uh, uh, Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon have talked about a certain, uh, a kind of Amazon for Quebec, like a national, like a Amazon that's like specifically built for Quebec. Because mm-hmm. I think he expressed um, some uh, level of concern about like Amazon not having enough Quebec made goods. And then you have these sort of like a little more like, I guess, Quebec national arguments about why you should have our own kind of uh, Amazon here that's like for us, by us. Uh, I'm kind of curious how you uh, connect your idea to theirs if they are connected. So what I understood through the panier bleu or whatever the hell they were talking about was that it was just going to be basically a website like Amazon where, you know, you could buy Quebec products Mm -hmm. uh, and they would like, you know, everybody would go there to buy Quebec products. And I don't know how, you know, the infrastructure of getting those products to folks or to consumers was going to be. Amazon today is the biggest infrastructure, like logistical infrastructure in the world. They are capable of delivering stuff to you in one or two days, obviously because, you know, there's huge levels of exploitation and stuff like that, but also because Amazon kind of comes in and fills something that most countries, except for the United States of America, have, which was a which was a a, po- a national public post system, right? True. Like corporation, right? Like uh, post Canada, uh, you know, just like robust supply chain network, exactly, robust right? logistics system, exactly. That logistics system, like, so if Amazon tomorrow morning decides to cut off the logistics system, or let's say even in a less like evil and whatever uh, scenario, uh, Amazon just collapses bankruptcy and all of these different logistical systems uh, are cut off by different companies that mm-hmm. don't work together because that's not how it works. Well, actually, there's, a, there's an example of that when, when Ontario privatized Hydro, mm-hmm. right? And we saw a few years back, there was this huge uh, storm, uh, a snowstorm in Ontario and people were without um, electricity in some neighborhoods in Toronto and stuff like that. And so several people died because they were trying to like heat their homes with uh like you know made like uh ovens and stuff like that sure, and like sure, you know sure. w- w- and in the in what was crazy in those reports coming out of Toronto was that one block was owned by one company and then the other block was owned by the other company mm-hmm. and that you the 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 people would show up to fix whatever problem it was, but they would only show up for their own company. They wouldn't fix the other side of the block. You right, know what I mean? Because it, that's what competition is. And right. they're not incredibly, you know, just by its nature, incredibly inefficient. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, we also have to ask ourselves strategically, and this is something obviously that, you know, governments are not going to talk about because like they, we, you don't want to talk about that, but we've been offloading all of these strategical, like super important uh, nexuses of like public power to corporations and Amazon being one of them, um, you know, and in most cases, this infrastructure that they take or that they they appropriate um, is infrastructure that was paid by public money, mm-hmm. right? That we just mm-hmm. give an offload. And then so it's like public money for the risk taking, but then it's private money for everything that's profits, right? You know, 
So I don't think the PQ and the CAC actually have any idea about creating like an actual public entity that could uh, compete with Amazon. Mm -hmm. uh, that would, you know, create like the basis for actually, um, you know, using, helping uh, small and medium companies in Quebec actually reach like uh, Quebec consumers uh, through public. And so everybody could be a shareholder of a public entity, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but I don't think they actually think about that. I think they think of a very baseline, basically let's build a website and then let's, let's figure it out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, as yeah. long as it's in French and it's a website, like they would have no problem creating the Amazon version in French of Amazon you know, mm -hmm. but that's not the model we want, right. you know? Okay. Can we uh, go to the next slide, please? Uh, yes. I wanted to end on this quote by Paris Marx, the uh, host of the uh, Tech Won't Save Us podcast. Uh, I thought this great was podcast. kind of a great podcast. Uh, friend of the show. I've never met him, but he's sort of at the edge of our, whatever, like media network. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe he'll see this. <laughs> <laughs> You wish. <laughs> uh, anyways, I, I feel like the whole discussion we're having about these, uh, courting these kind of technocratic companies, courting these kinds of like big players that we assume have the sort of like know-how or expertise in solving the problems we have, we face to our day-to-day. -day. I, I feel like this quote kind of uh, uh, speaks to that a little bit where Paris Marks in this uh, interview with the Canadian Dimension. Yeah, uh, he, you had to plug that, right? He, he says... Uh, Do you write for Canadian Dimension? He, he says, uh, improving the world is a political project. Not a technological one. So the question is, will our representatives see things that way? Thank you very much, Niall Clapham Ricardo, for uh, coming on to the show, um, sharing some of your uh, uh, perspectives on uh, politics in the city, uh, politics uh, federally, provincially, uh, given your uh, experiences and uh, knowledge in that. Uh, I hope, you ha hope to have you again on the show if uh, this episode isn't just a total bomb. And if uh, people do see, do not like keep me, hold me on every word that I said in this episode, just know that, you know, there's a disclaimer. Um, I was just doing this for Calden and nothing. You can't say that after the episode's done. That's true. Okay. Well, it's done. It's done now. I have to live with it. We'll be right back with Hello Goodbye Lines with not Savannah Craig this time. What the? Stay tuned. It'll be like, what, like 10, 15 minutes? Go get some snacks, get some air. I'll see you soon. Welcome back. To Metropolis. I'm your host, Colin Datsipa. Today, our segment, Hello Goodbye Lines. But you'll see, next to me is not Savannah Craig, like usual. Next to me today is Neha Chilangi. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me on, Colin. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> I actually don't have any water. Can you have some of your water? Yeah, of course. Is that enough? No, but that's fine. Okay, great. We share here at CUTV. That's right. We share... Yeah. Hydration. Uh, hydration? Water. <laughs> water, yeah, yeah. I was going to say something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and knowledge. Mm. We're, here, we're here as journalists sharing our perspectives on the world of Montreal. Indeed. The metropolis of Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking like this to try to... Did you have a stroke during the <laughs> You guys smell, does, does the producer smell burnt toast? <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, Neha, thank you for coming on to this episode. Uh, I feel like I've had to, uh, uh, I've been looking forward to uh, your segments. Uh, what do you have for us today? Uh, today, I would love to talk about Chinatown in Montreal and um, the fact that it has historical heritage designation, what exactly that means, and um, 
what it provides the neighborhood and what it doesn't quite provide the neighborhood yet. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to, to get into it. Have today. you you have you gone to Chinatown a few times? I have a few times. Yes, there's some there's some good food there. Lanzu noodles, yes. incredible. Yeah, I have a lot of places that I would like to to go to eat food there. But every time I do go there, I feel at home. It's nice. Nice, nice, terrific. Yeah. Well, uh, what's uh, so you tell me a little more about this uh, historical designation? Was uh, what does that mean? Yeah. So basically, this has been kind of in the works for quite a while. Um, like advocates of Chinatown in Montreal have been working towards getting this uh, historical designation for for years, um, and that happened in January 2022. The province has given um, the neighborhood historical designation, and uh, recently the city has as well. So basically, to break it down, what that means is. When the province gave uh, the neighborhood a historical designation, um, they had protected a core part of the of, of Chinatown mm-hmm. um, and protected two specific buildings, which was the Wings Noodle Factory um, and also um, the S. Davis and Sons Factory building. Um, and when the city gave historical designation, um, that kind of just expanded what the protection was. So it included all of Chinatown. Um, uh, which includes residential areas as well, and they also um, they also modified the urban plan so that the zoning bylaws um, made it so that you can't build um, uh, and and have buildings over a certain height. Oh, I guess that's sort of a. It's about like eight to ten, ten stories. I guess that disincentivizes uh, potential developers and people who want to, let's say, buy up some of those properties to build like big condos and big hotels. This is it disincentivizes them from doing that because there's boom, there's this kind of a permit limit on that. Exactly, and um, and yeah, also um, they have to they have to request um, the the city if they can do make any modifications because those sites and those buildings are protected mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. Um, which is a huge win. Um, of course, um, because it protects that that neighborhood, it protects those buildings. Um, but yeah, there's 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 it doesn't it doesn't but. protect the the intangible parts of the the neighborhood. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Um, I do have a video actually that that kind of gets into the news of the historical designation, so we can watch that. We love videos here. We do. I think it's uh, it's a great way to highlight the contribution of uh, the Chinese communities, especially the first uh, Chinese immigrants in Canada. Montreal's Chinatown has officially been recognized as the city's first neighborhood designated as a heritage site. The push for this came from community concerns about the impact that real estate pressure could have on Chinatown and the desire to protect the heritage identity and characteristics of the attractions and cultural practices. Uh, as a Chinatown as a historical site, I think it will um, it creates a lot of opportunities on terms of educational uh, and also uh, uh, interpretation of the history of Chinatown. Montreal's Chinatown began to develop in the 1890s and today has many restaurants, markets, grocery stores, health services and cultural organizations. Montreal Mayor Valerie Plante says this new status was part of a global strategy to promote the sector's history and recognize the contribution of the age community. I think more and more school and more people come here. So the Chinatown will be have a, a good business. I'm just hoping that the designation of Chinatown uh, Heritage Site will is more than just like for the aesthetics. 
and it's more than just um, for Chinatown as being a tourist attraction. Last year, the Quebec government designated Chinatown as a provincial heritage site, protecting nine buildings from major alterations or demolition. With the recent municipal declaration, the hope from many in Montreal's Chinatown community is that both Montrealers and tourists will learn more about their history. We had the head tax uh, by the Canadian government, and also in 1923 there was the Chinese Exclusion Act um, that was in, uh, that really separate families to uh, to able to come to to China, and also uh, later there also uh, there was also a tax for the landmarks owned by Chinese. We should like add it in the curriculum of schools so that they know that it happened. Um, there, at one point in Montreal and Quebec, there was the exclusionary laws that banned Chinese immigration for like many years. So I think it's not something that we can just like forget about. I think in this case, it is definitely a first step to many that the city at least recognizes the uh, Chinatown as a heritage site. Now I'd like to see this information being propagated and being basically educated everywhere as well. In Montreal, Gareth Maddock-Jones, City News. Nice little clip there from City News. Garrett Maddock-Jones talking about the uh, heritage protections that are now in force in Chinatown. Montreal's Chinatown, and you also had some few uh, uh, community members talking about, uh, I guess, uh, what they're looking forward to from these uh, policy resolutions, as well as uh, some concerns. I believe the... Uh, uh, the young woman from the Chinatown Youth Organization was uh, concerned about uh, it being something only for aesthetic purposes, which is, uh, I think, a totally a valid concern. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like what she said um, there. And yeah, because I think that is that echoes a uh, concern that many advocates do have that this is sort of a, a, a move that, for lack of a better word, like fossilizes that neighborhood, mummifies mm -hmm. it um, mm -hmm. without actually helping the the communities that live there mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um and actually the the city did say as well like the historical designation is to help out the residents but also tourists um and as we know like the the neighborhood has been a tourist attraction and the city has been promoting it as a tourist attraction since the 80s so mm -hmm. um i think the the need to shift um, what they're doing for the residents is, is quite important. No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I believe you have a uh, a story from a uh, a resident for us. Yeah, actually, so this person isn't a resident, but they did grow up in uh, Montreal's Chinatown, and mm -hmm. I, I talked to them for an article I wrote um, a little while ago, which was about uh, community led uh, activism that was happening in Chinatown to do the work that. Um, that has been accomplished of, of getting historical designation and protecting Chinatown. Um, so I spoke to Sandy Yep, who is someone that is a, an educator in Toronto now, mm -hmm. actually. But um, basically what happened with Sandy, this was back in 2021. Sandy saw an article in the Montreal Gazette. And back then, um, these two um, condo developers were looking to tear down the Wings Noodle Factory building and a couple of other buildings in that block um, to build condos, as as they do. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was there was a huge outcry over that, honestly. And um, when Sandy saw it, he, he rea reacted with a lot of anxiety and, uh, and concern. But what struck him was in the pictures of the Montreal Gazette, he saw a picture of a backyard 
And he recognized that backyard because he grew up in that house Mm -hmm. and it was right next to the wings noodle factory. Um, And it was his grandfather's house that, that went back to 18, um, 1890s when his grandfather first, first came to, to Montreal. And so that, that house has been in his family for, you know, four generations. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the, the idea of that being torn apart, having condos built was a very personal attack for him, really. Um, one of the things he said that I wanted to to quote was, I witnessed the destruction, demolition, and dismantling of our Chinatown. The fact is that we have been here since 1897, at least my grandfather, and nobody understands that this story is literally about our erasure, yeah. um, which I thought was, was quite powerful because I think the way that we we talk about this, these stories and look at it as this collective history, but I think there's a lot of individual histories that are impacted um, when we talk about Chinatown as well, which I, I, I think um, I think is interesting. Like that's that's a huge uh, moment for someone to, no, to see course. their like grandfathers and their their childhood home being uh, potentially demolished. But um, basically, Sandy went to the Chinatown Working Group, um, who was a huge part in. Um, you know, getting residents, getting um, municipal city councilors and all of these folks together um, to to essentially have the historical designation to protect these buildings. And so I think what I'm trying to get back to is like this historical designation for stories like this to protect these physical um, notes of this neighborhood is, is super important. No. Um, and yeah. Yeah, no, it's incredible to hear that it's uh, four generations of his family. Because I mean, honestly, it's like sometimes like... Um I think I think even myself I forget uh, not not recently but like I feel like growing up I was I was kind of like uh, amazed at how long the Chinese community here has been here because m- my family came here in like the seventies I remember it was during um, a history class in high school where my history teacher was talking about like the waves of like immigration here in like Canada and Montreal and it's like Chinese community here in uh, in Canada like it's like British Columbia the Chinese community came at the same time as the British here in Montreal they're like one of the oldest like if you think of like Saint Laurent as like this kind of like tree ring. And if you think of like the old port as like the start of that, you see the, Ch- the Chinatown is like right there after the old port, right? It's like you have the Basilica and then from the Basilica, you can start to see Chinatown, right? And it's these communities that came here from, uh, most of them are from the Southern uh, Guangdong province in China. They came here after the area was going through like incredible, like um, very turbulent times, lots of violence, lots of like uh, little small like revolts, uh, famine as well. And so there, a lot of them uh, sought, uh, sought refuge in uh uh, in foreign places like Canada and the U.S., uh, and then you have uh, one of the uh, interviewees talking before about sort of like this, this, this legacy of the kind of arms that came to greet them, and it's like they came here for like where like money for some security, and then instead they were met with like very kind of like xenophobic kind of like policies set out by like the Canadian government, uh, participation from like Quebec, like I mean all levels of like um uh, 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 uh government here kind of a uh, sort of worked uh, hand in hand to try and. Uh, exclude Chinese people from society. You know, he mentioned the Chinese head tax, which uh, made it so uh, a lot of the Chinese men here in uh, uh, in Canada, most of them were men, of course, working in like the railroads or like other kind of like laundromats or restaurants. They made it so their families couldn't get here. I think it's something like 80% of the um, Chinese population in like the, uh, I think it was before 1940, had most of their families back in China and they wanted to bring them over, of course, but then they couldn't because of this very uh, expensive head tax. 
And then that's just one of the policies, right? That's like said about like excluding them, excluding the Chinese uh, population here from society. I think Montreal's, Montreal's uh, uh, Chinatown is especially notable because Quebec used to have its own Chinatown, which is mm-hmm. uh, a very small one, but it was uh, demolished to make room for this uh, auto route. And even you have this this sort of uh, thing where uh, uh, you had administrations here using development as a sort of way to either like erase parts of a neighborhood. Like, I mean, Montreal's, um, the Montreal, the Ville Marie Expressway, they demolished part of uh, Little Burgundy, which is predominantly black neighborhoods where a uh, uh, jazz musician, Oscar Peterson grew up. Uh, that's one of the examples. And even if, if you're in like uh, Chinatown, Montreal, you'll notice like on like, uh, I believe it's on René Lévesque, you'll see like these big like government of Canada buildings. And it's, they sort of, they sort of set those up they they bought the land around Chinatown to and built these big government buildings there to try to like contain the community, you know. And mm-hmm. I, I spoke to a representative from uh, uh, the GIA Foundation. She was telling me that because uh, I was kind of like wondering, I was like, did you guys ever want like an apology from the government for that? They're like, the community here has never really cared about that too much. I think they care more about like getting these kind of uh, historic heritage designations. And and of course, right, because you had the, a few years ago. I mean, like the not a few years ago, but you have this Chinatown, very central neighborhood, urban neighborhood. Right next to downtown, right next to the old port, sort of in a kind of a a nice location, right? And you're starting to have uh, developers who are interested in uh, moving in. Um, yeah, anyways, I, this is just all a short thing to say. The this, uh, reflecting on Sandy's uh, 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 talking about how how long his family has been here, and I guess I guess it's something that's I think to me incredible always to hear about these uh, very long family histories of people who are here. Uh, and then the the efforts they're doing to try to uh, to maintain those histories and try to make sure that they're not uh, erased, as uh, Sandy is concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's such a rich history. Um, did you? I'm, I'm just curious, but did you learn about um, the Chinese history in Montreal and Canada when you were in school? No, no, of course not. No, 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 no. I, I learned that on my own. Uh, I can't remember what it was. I think I was just like. I was just on one of those, like, you ever go on, like, a Wikipedia binge? Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wikipedia I remember those, yeah. Yeah, it was, like, a, a few nights I was just, like, mm, Chinese people in Canada. <laughs> and I was like, just a casual Friday night for Colton. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, good, there's a good book called Alien Capital by Eco Day. It's a little kind of academic, but she talked, there's a lot of interesting things uh, that I think she explores that I still, I think, remain underexplored about kind of uh, Chinese and Asian histories in Canada. Um because I remember, I, I think, what was I looking up? I was looking up about, like, certain kind of xenophobic histories in Canada, like uh, maybe not xenophobic uh, specifically. This one is like sort of like anti-Japanese sentiment. Yeah, but it's I was like, gonna ask. Yeah, yeah. It's about the uh, internment camps we had for yes, like yeah. Japanese Canadians, right? They were here mm-hmm. for a while, and then during World War II, people were like, "Well, obviously these Japanese people are going to be loyal to Japan," and so they sort of like rounded them up. They put them in uh, in like trains and like kind of like in, uh, internment housing uh, right near the. Uh, Pacific Rail Grounds. Do you know? Uh, yeah, it's, it's where the P and E is. The Pacific. there's so many of those in in BC actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember yeah, yeah. passing by a bunch of them. They're like museums now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it's good. It's good that the, that kind of memory is being uh, exercised. But I think yeah. we still have. Uh, I mean, I think I think uh, you're going to mention this, but there's still there's still that kind of history of uh, not even the history, but there's still that kind of uh, anti-Asian kind of sentiment, which is still uh, uh, unfortunately alive. Yeah, I mean, I think it is really unfortunate that we don't have like I think. Um, one of the people that we saw in the videos from the Chinatown youth movement talked about this. It should be taught in schools. Yeah. And I, I think I remember being taught about, we had maybe one page of a handout or something and like talked about it for an hour and, and brushed past it really quickly. But um, it is, I, I think it, it's a shame that we don't because I, I, I do wonder how much it contributes to the fact that we 
we see like how we see these neighborhoods and these uh, communities in our collective consciousness mm -hmm. when we when we have such a, a void in in the the history and memory of how long they've been here, mm -hmm. how 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 deep their history mm -hmm. is on this land. And, and it's funny because it's not like it's of course it's on the land, but it's also in the language as well. If yeah, I, here in yeah. Quebec, there's lots of things that have to do with like Xian and Chinois. There's like I remember it was, yeah. uh, it's always always interesting talking to people about uh, how they relate to these kinds of things. It's like um, like Lashin, the neighborhood here, mm -hmm. called that because uh, I think it was a group of like early settlers there sort of like used that as their home base. And then they would like every now and then they would try to these excursions out east through like the Canadian wilderness to try and find China. And then they came back and of course they did not find China. Shocking. And people were like, hey, it's good. Like, did you find like China yet? And then that's how the neighborhood got named. Because, like, <laughs> and we're just, like, I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely wild. And even things like pate chinois, like shepherd's pie or like uh, shadow puppets are called uh, uh, something like, uh, oh, I've got the word in French, but it also it evokes uh, this like image of China, which is, I find so interesting. That, that book I mentioned before uh, talks about how um, Van Horn, the OG that the, mm -hmm. the, his, the overpass is named after. He was yeah. a big, big lover of like Asian stuff, but like in, in a way that's like sort of like... Uh, fetishistic like if you go to yeah. um uh the montreal fine arts museum you see a lot of like old kind of like asian artifacts of like kind of carriages or like dresses uh samurai stuff and a lot of those were his because he was just like he was just like he was like a old school japanophile interesting mm -hmm. yeah that's kind mm -hmm. of icky a little bit oh yeah 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 absolutely <laughs> absolutely uh in in equal day's book alien capital she has this um a little drawing that he did of like a Chinese guy. Oh God! And he's like, it's just like I mean, it's like it seems like it comes from some kind of weird like fetishistic. Um, um, uh, I don't know, like I don't know. For him, it was like a hobby, I guess, which is like weird. He's just like drawing my little Asian guy. In his you know, book. he would like love anime. Oh, he yeah. oh absolutely, yeah, absolutely, like, yeah, yeah. You yeah. love if he was still around. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, I'll absolutely. <laughs> He'd love Bobo. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, what else? What else do you have for us, anyhow, about uh, the Chinatown here in Montreal? Um, yeah, I kind of wanted to like jump jump ahead and talk about what is sort of happening today and like the last couple of years and stuff. Um, Bring us back to the present. I'm bringing you back. Um, so there's been a lot of fires, um, metaphorical fires. I don't want to be in the present anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, metaphorical fires, but like when we when we're talking about the amenities that are not there in in the neighborhood, um, if we we go back to 2018 um, and 2019, a lot of stuff happened. So, for example, 2018, the Chinese community uh, the center shut down. Uh, 2019, the YMCA shut down, both due to escalating rent prices. Um, like both of which are like really important pillars of um, of a neighborhood of communities, of you know. Um, and just a couple months ago in October, actually, the city uh, was temporarily closing a homeless shelter in in the neighborhood. Um, but and this homeless shelter had like sixty five beds. Um, and what they did was, well, they were getting a lot of complaints from people um, in the surrounding areas, saying there was you know a lot of uh, crime and. Uh, rowdy behavior happening because of the homeless population. Um, and so they they shut it down temporarily and moved it to Verdun, mm. which is 10 kilometers away. Not near Chinatown at all. Not near Chinatown at all. So these, these people that were living in Chinatown that were experiencing homelessness, that were using this homeless shelter, were now expected to go somewhere that was 10 kilometers away. Like, I, don't, I don't know where you can get good dim sum in Verdun, honestly. No, yeah, like... 
what's the point yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I i do think there's there's you see metaphorical fires there was a there was actually like a, a, a big fire that happened in oh, chinatown that's right. yeah you mentioned that yeah i can't remember the name of the building but this is like um uh, it opened in like eight in the, like late 1800s this was like one of the first theaters cinemas in north america and a few years ago it like burned down and i remember like my concern was like when anytime these old like historic buildings burn down i'm always like oh great like you can't give like you can't really give like a protected status heritage status to anything that's burnt down and usually likely what's going to come up is going to be a condo so mm. um yeah so i will say of course there's these metaphorical fires of a uh, kind of pillars of a community like a community center or ymca shutting down uh but there was also sometimes real fires yeah um unfortunate yeah you don't remember what building that was huh I do not. <laughs> That's not not good journalism of me. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a video. Look it up yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually have a video um, about some folks talking about the, the the homeless shelter, so we can take a look at that. We love videos. We do. We are here now to show that we are not agree. We don't. We didn't agree about this closing of the shelter. A group of Montrealers called Chinatown Youth is speaking out after the closure of the homeless shelter inside the complex Guy Favreau here in Chinatown. They are asking that more resources be directed toward housing, mental health, and drug-related overdoses in Montreal. Now that they say many here in the homeless community have to find other shelter downtown, rendering them more vulnerable. We are asking for more shelters in downtown, more resources in downtown, and not allocated in Verdun, which is like uh, like 30, 40 minutes from here. A new temporary shelter opened in Verdun on Friday, about 10 kilometers from the former Chinatown shelter. Although shuttle buses paid by the city are in service to transport those in need to available resources, there are questions about how many will actually use this service and how many remain in the downtown Chinatown area. They think also that the resources that they have is located in downtown. It's not in Verdun. It's not at the outskirts of the downtown Montreal. These calls for action from Chinatown youth come after the homeless shelter in Chinatown was closed following complaints from local businesses and residents who said that they had been the target of violence and criminal acts related to drug consumption and homelessness. For the people living in Chinatown, it's, it's good for them to live in here because uh, they cause a lot of problems. I don't think it's a good thing because many people knew that. I don't think they're going to they're gonna leave, right? they got a right to live or they got a right to stay. Like you see the camping there? Maybe they're gonna, the camp is going to be bigger, bigger. Who knows? We're talking about the safety of all Chinatown community. And we believe that the unhoused people are also uh, part of the Chinatown community. In a statement, the city of Montreal says that some 20 people from the complex Guy Favreau have been relocated and that the others have received a list of housing resources throughout Montreal. Chinatown Youth, which represents some 30 young people living in the neighborhood, says that the insecurity concerns of the elderly residents of Chinatown must be treated with seriousness, but that the closure of the homeless shelter only makes issues faced by this population even worse. I think it's it's good to see that for the first time the Chinatown community is embodied by multiple people and we are a diversity of people who cares about the social issues in Chinatown. So uh, we believe that the beginning of, uh, you know, a big mobilization of Chinatown and a different one. In Montreal, Gareth Maddock-Jones, City News. Is Garrett like their like Chinatown correspondent? That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, he's, he's like on know, top of it, like in the same corner. Yeah, yeah, that's his corner. <laughs> 
his camera is kind of shaky, though. I don't know if we're, our listeners <laughs> they don't see that, but his camera is sort of... He's just terrified of the lack of homeless shelters. This is truly, yeah. truly a, yeah. an upstanding citizen who's, con- <laughs> who's concerned about the social services in that part of town. Um, really <laughs> incredible to see uh, this uh, this youth group, Chinatown Youth, uh, uh, advocate for uh, uh, unhoused people and also claim them to be part of the community, right? Because yeah. I feel like sometimes when I... Sometimes community groups can be a little... Uh, I guess they can verge, uh, they can kind of uh, toe the line between being a community group and being sort of like almost like a homeowners association that's kind of concerned about the image of a neighborhood. Right. But I think um, I think this this group doesn't seem to kind of uh, fall into that uh, designation at all. It seems no. like they're advocating for uh, unhoused people. Uh, they recognize them as part of the community, but they also recognize the uh, concerns of uh, um, the more uh, elderly people in the neighborhood who are worried about security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I do like how she said, you know, they're part of this community. And uh, another resident said that they, they deserve to live here. They deserve, they deserve to stay downtown just like any anyone else. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I, I kind of brought that point up because I think I think it's important to look at the amenities that are available in those neighborhoods that, that make it actually livable, mm-hmm. um, for people. So yeah, like homeless shelters, like those kinds of things that we talked about, the community center, homeless shelter, the YMCA, the YMCA mm-hmm. shutting down, but there was other, there's other things that never existed actually, which, um, came up when I was talking to Parker Ma, who's part of the GF foundation. Um, and he said, you know, things like senior centers, parks, green spaces, affordable housing complex, those, those sorts of things never existed mm-hmm. to begin with, you know? Um, and so that's, those are important things to keep in mind when we're thinking about what does it mean to revitalize Chinatown, mm-hmm. um, make it a vibrant community? Like who are we making it? A vibrant community for right, right. Is it for the residents there, or is it perhaps for tourists who can't, who don't really like seeing homeless people around? Yeah, the, exactly. The tourist spots, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. I think. Uh, I think. How long? How long has the uh, neighborhood been a, a sort of tourist destination? Um, I think it's been marketed as a tourist destination, like for quite a long time, like probably since the eighties. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that's that's still something the the city i feel like has in mind when they're thinking about chinatown and the image of it and like the collective way that we we think about it Mm -hmm. um but um a lot of community-based groups i think are recognizing that and 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 push trying to push away from it um push away from what exactly from from the idea that this neighborhood is just a tourist destination. Mm, right. Of course. Um, you know, that it, that it's, a, that people actually still live there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and these people deserve to have the amenities that every other neighborhood in Montreal has. Mm. They don't want to live in a, a museum that's sort of like hermetically sealed and like preserved. They want to be able to live in something that's like a thriving community mm-hmm, that yeah. has, that, that has like, let's say the, uh, uh, amenities and institutions you're mentioning, right? Like seniors' homes, yeah. uh, clinics, a homeless shelter as well, uh, or even mm-hmm. like a, a gym to go to. Yeah, like gathering spaces for communities, you know. Mm-hmm. And and this 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 is not really um, unique to Montreal's Chinatown. I mean, it's happening to Chinatowns all over Canada, all over North America. Um, and there there's a lot of really cool community based action that's happening. Um, inside of this stuff, um, like there's obviously we have the Geo Foundation, well, which I'll kind of come back and talk about. Um, but for example, T-Base in Toronto is a really cool example. T-Base. T-Base. Um, T-E-A base. Um, B-A-S-E. In case, <laughs> so, in case our listeners didn't know. Yes, exactly. Um, they don't exist as a physical space anymore, um, but they, they still 
um, our collective group that 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 work on a lot of stuff. And honestly, I've been trying to get collective land agreements um, as well, so that you know the community can own um, the space that they're living in. Oh, and land own. trust, yeah, lovely. Yeah, lovely. yeah. Um, one of the things that they did as well, which I, I thought was great, a couple of years ago was. Um, so, you know, when real estate developers are putting up signs, they're putting up these signs in English mm-hmm. and a lot of mm-hmm. residents, senior residents specifically will not be able to read those signs. Mm-hmm. And so they don't know what's happening. So they were translating these signs to, to Mandarin or Cantonese, but you know, it's things like that. Um, community groups that understand who's living there, understand the needs of the people that are living there and are doing things specifically for that. Because, I mean, those things are important. Um, the city is not thinking of those things. No, of course. Um, These developers aren't really thinking about those things. They're no. just trying to do something quick. They're like, all right, whatever, sign in English. Exactly. We don't really care about the residents here, right? Exactly. So that was that was really great. Um, they also have just like a community art space. Um, they host Mahjong nights on Mondays. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Um, hell yeah. They, Road trip. <laughs> yeah. But I think a, a huge part of their mission is about showing that the, this space is not... Um, just a historical artifact. You know, we're we're a living culture. We have things that are going on every day. Um, we're here to teach you and mm-hmm. and bring you into our spaces. Um, so T Base is really cool. Um, IA Collective in Edmonton also does um really great stuff. They have like wellness workshops, bringing back traditional Chinese medicine and and how to take care of our community and and bring back um health practices, things like that. Um, GF Foundation here in Montreal has been doing fantastic things. Like I think I mentioned before, um, it used to be, it was, it was kind of, um, um, affiliated, affiliated with with, Chinatown um, working group. Thank you. Chinatown working group. I got you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that dissolved into GF foundation and Chinatown, um, round table. Um, but yeah, GF foundation has a lot of great partnerships with other community, Groups they've been advocating um, to protect the neighborhood from gentrification for uh, a super long time. They ho- host art exhibits um, and yeah, uh, are just like a great learning space to to you know keep this uh, neighborhood alive and well. Incredible, incredible, incredible things to to see. Uh, incredible to see these kinds of things uh, being uh, advocated for. Uh, like I remember when I hear hear about the Jiv Foundation, Chinatown Working Group, I was kind of like relieved that there's these kind of community organizations kind of fighting for that. Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting that uh, this is a thought I had that the, the Chinatown Montreal is the first one to receive this kind of historic status. And I'm kind of wondering, I'm like, oh, I wonder if other neighborhoods are going to be able to get that kind of status or what is it about the Chinatown uh, community groups that are able to so like, well, how are they able to mobilize so quickly, efficiently with kind of city officials on this kind of uh, issue, right? Because like, I think about like, if I think about another, like, let's say like ethnic neighbor in Montreal that did not have these sort of protections, I think about like Griffintown, right? This old like Irish working class neighborhood. Now it's just like pff, completely leveled. There's like a few of the old factories there, but like the initial Irish population there are just gone, right? They've mm-hmm. kind of like, I, I mean, maybe that's because they're able to find uh, other like English or Catholic kind of communities around Montreal that they didn't really feel like they had to have this kind of physical space where maybe perhaps the Chinese community did not uh, feel like they had that kind of uh, uh, other options. So maybe that could be why they're sticking together. Uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see uh, yeah, what other neighborhoods try to get the status, if any, and then uh, how the other neighborhoods kind of go about it. Because this is uh, a cool thing to see. It's a cool thing to see this kind of uh, community protections, uh, uh, neighborhood protections being put in place against uh, gentrification. Yeah, I think another thing that the municipal designation is supposed to be um, helping towards is education and uh, promoting cultural education of the neighborhood as well. So 
Um, they haven't really come out and said exactly what that means or how much money would be going into things like that. But I think um, funneling that funding towards community organizations like this is is ideal, like to, mm -hmm. to put it in the hands of the, the folks that are living there and are working there and, and knowing what's going on. Um, yeah. Thank you very much, Neha, for yeah. uh, bringing the story to us. Yeah. And, uh, I guess, Thank you. Uh, time to I'm get some noodles in Chinatown, maybe. <laughs> I was supposed to go to Chinatown this weekend. I didn't. Oh, I, I should go, go back. Yeah. With new eyes. New eyes, yeah. New eyes and your appreciation oh, yeah. oh, for yeah. these I'm historical buildings. Ordering some duck, some pork belly, and I'll be like, oh, my God, I'm part of history. <laughs> 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 Thank you very much, everyone. That's uh, our show for uh, today, for this week, actually. Because uh, we're a weekly show. <laughs> <laughs> be back here tomorrow. My little, my little self edit there. <laughs> uh, thank you again to Neha. Thank you uh, to the crew. Uh, everyone. Uh, sort of behind the camera that the, the audience can't see uh takes a takes a lot of hands to uh get this show running uh and i'm very appreciative of everyone who's uh, helped out on the show uh, and also appreciative of you the listener thank you so much for the i'm thanking the listeners <laughs> Please thank you for listening um take care of yourselves happy lunar new year if you celebrate i will be celebrating the lunar new year as i say lunar new year lunar new me i'll see you next week folks take care <laughs>